athletic competition. It can easily be broken down into two parts. The minutes or hours it takes to complete the event. Then weeks, months, and years of joy or heartbreak. Finally, the decades to analyze and debate it. From the press box to press row, Donald Ware will break it all down for you with an in-depth look at historically black college athletics, as well as the biggest news stories and newsmakers of the day. It's time to talk the talk with those who walk the walk. From the press box to press row, here's your host, Donald Ware. I get it. I get it. I want it. I want it. I own it. Once again, you're locked into the dopest show on radio, Box to Row. I am your host, Donald Ware. Right here on HUR Voices, Sirius XM, Channel 141. Hope you're continuing to stay safe and in place where you are. Listen, we got a whole lot to get to today here on Box to Row. As a matter of fact, we're going to be joined by musician Rhiannon Giddens. Rhiannon Giddens is going to join us here on the program and i'll tell you what rhiannon giddens is from greensboro north carolina which is about an hour a little more than an hour up the road from where we are here in raleigh and you know when you talk about banjo players and you talk about um what she's able to do musically i mean she is absolutely phenomenal it's one uh, a Grammy Award in her career and is one of the preeminent banjo players in the world. I think she has an absolutely phenomenal story, and uh, we're going to get into it uh, today here on the program. Very much looking forward to speaking with Rhiannon Giddens. Also today here on Box to Row, uh, and, and listen, this is the show where sports and entertainment meet so we're going to give you the entertainment element with Rhiannon Giddens we're going to give you the sports element with Cal Ripken the baseball hall of famer doing his part no doubt with respect to this COVID-19 pandemic and also going to talk with him about his outstanding career Cal Ripken also going to join us today here on Box to Row Love for you to participate here on the program. Hit me up via Twitter at Box to Row, B-O-X-T-O-R-O-W, or on Facebook, B-O-X, the number two, R-O-W. Also on my personal Twitter account, trying to get a lot better about Twitter personally from a personal standpoint, at dware one at dware one or also on my personal Instagram account, where Donald where Donald, where D-O-N-A-L, and just follow me while you're there. I look forward to, as a matter of fact, hearing from you. And certainly during these times, I want to thank all of those that are on the front lines um, that are, are really doing a fantastic, magnificent, heroic job. We, we use the word hero a lot and throw the term heroic around, but I mean, the folks that are on the front lines, and I'm talking about um, healthcare personnel. I'm talking about our postal carriers or the persons that deliver uh, uh, packages, our mail, etc. 
I am talking uh, about those uh, that uh, are in uh, stores that are open uh, right now, those that are in restaurants, takeout places, uh, et cetera, because there are a need for those things. And so uh, those people are definitely heroes and uh, we definitely want to shot them out. No question uh, about that. As we're going to get through this thing, we're going to get through it. Um, things, as you can see, are starting to uh, to open back up a little bit. We don't want we want to still continue to be cautious. Uh, but I think things as long as we're cautious, I think things will uh, are starting to open back up and we can uh, uh, try to get back. It, it is a new normal. I mean, I think it is a new normal, uh, but I think we can try uh, as much as we can to get back uh, to the way that things were. Let's continue here on Box to Row as we're joined by one of the preeminent musicians in all of the world, one of the preeminent banjo players as well. And we're very glad that Rhiannon Giddens has joined us here on Box to Row. Rhiannon, welcome to the program. Thank you. Let me start here. Just this is. You know, when you're talking about COVID-19 in the in the coronavirus, first of all, how how are you and your family doing where you are? Um, we're okay. We're in Ireland. Uh, right, you know, my kids are half Irish, so uh, that's that's where I'm at when I'm when I'm not working. So, you know, it's a small country, and they kind of tried to put a lid on it pretty early. So, seems to be doing okay. You know, as well as you can. It's everywhere, and people are dying everywhere. But. Um, you know, me and my my near and dear are, are okay, so I I take my blessings from that. Yeah, no no question about it. So what have you? You know, it's 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 a time, and I know actually when I went to your website, I saw you've obviously like most people have, have had, you know, to rearrange schedules. A lot of your uh, upcoming concerts and such um, will will not take place. Um, what what sort of has life been like for you? the last month uh, or so? Well, it's, you know, <laughs> it's an odd mixture of stressful and um, a lot of unexpected time off. Um, you know, I've been on tour for 14 years, and this is going to be the longest I'll have been in one place in all of those 14 years, including having two children on the road. Um, so it's an odd, it's odd in that I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of relishing having all of this time with my kids and time at home. But on the other hand, I'm very worried about, you know, money coming in. I'm worried about actually more and more worried about the people that I pay. Um, you know, I have a bit of a cushion, but uh, I know a lot of people don't. And the folks that I would have been employing during this time, that's, you know, I'm more worried about the folks like that and, and folks like, you know, musicians who play, play in the bands for, for people who go out who, you know, don't necessarily have the name recognition to pull in, um, to pull in, donations or, or live stream money, you know, uh, the people who run the lights and the sound and the, the whole industry, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big concern. So that's kind of a constant stress. In, in terms of uh, from a music perspective, I mean, your music is absolutely awesome. We're going to talk obviously more uh, about that. But, you know, has it allowed uh, for you to have more time, uh, uh, whether it's from a creative perspective, et cetera, um, musically, because I know a lot of this time you'd be doing, you know, I know when uh, back in February you were at the Grammys and, you, you know, you have a lot of different performances that you have to do. But now maybe it makes uh, uh, more time for you to uh, to really get into the music part and, and some other projects maybe you're working on, if you will. 
Well, yeah, it's, you know, because I'm kind of coming off of, my my album cycle was winding down a bit, you know, and I'm coming off of a pretty busy year last year because I had, you know, I had two records come out and was preparing for an opera. I had a ballet last year. The opera was supposed to come, you know, happen this year. It's obviously been postponed. So I've been doing a lot, actually. And so um, I'm actually kind of resting a little bit and trying to let the the, the, you know, you, if you do too much, then it, it gets, starts to get hard to create new things because you're always, your brain's always kind of inundated. So um, I've, I've had my kids for the last two and a half weeks, you know, kind of 24-7. So this is the first time actually I've had a bit of a breather and, and I've, I'm starting to feel it for sure, you know, uh, a resetting and, and the idea of what what all of the things that I could be working on. It's almost too much. It's almost daunting, you know. Um because I have a lot of time to fill, but there's plenty, always plenty of things to be doing. So I've already got a few things lined up, and and I, the the thing that I've been working on the most since uh, the news came down and I started canceling things was a website called Art. It's uh, ArtLivesOn.com, and it's uh, trying to collect all of these websites that people have been putting out there to help artists for and you know during this time, grant resources, funding resources, fundraisers, you know, a place to go to when you want to know what's streaming today, what's going to stream tomorrow, who's doing streams, trying to uh, connect fans directly to musicians in this, in this time since, you know, all of the sort of going to a concert or, you know, going to a record store, none of that's happening. So I'm trying to sort of co- uh, grab all of the things that are happening and kind of put it into one place so that people can go. And if they're an artist, they can go get resources. And if they're a fan, they can, connect maybe to um it's an ever-growing thing but um that's kind of been the thing that i've been working on the most you know just trying to to help in in the in the best way that i can so it's artliveson.com it's art it's it's uh i was uh working been working with um amanda palmer and neil gaiman on on this so you know it's not just musicians but also writers and artists other kinds of artists who are also affected by this so you know, doing yeah. what I can. Absolutely. No, it's a it's a great thing, a great collective. Artliveson.com. Go to that uh, website. Uh, so, but now you released more recently uh, here what Trees on the Mountains, uh, which features the Nashville Ballet. Can you speak to that and also your you know your relationship with the uh, Nashville Ballet? Yes. Um, well, Trees in the Mountains uh, I released last year as an aud- as a song on um, There Is No Other, a record I did with Francesco Cherisi. And uh, I had worked with uh, National Ballet on a ballet called uh, Lucy Negro Redux, um, which me and Francesco wrote the music for. And so I loved working with them. Paul Vasterling, who's the head of National Ballet, is an incredible, progressive, amazing uh, artistic director and choreographer. And so he and I have been looking for another thing to sort of collaborate on, maybe not something as big as a full new ballet. So um, we went back and forth, and he picked Trees on the Mountains from the record to choreograph uh, a, a dance to and, and got quite a, an amazing videographer who's worked with Beyonce um, to film, you know, to film the dance. This was in the works before all of this happened with the virus, you know, so... We're very happy to have it to release, you know, because it's something that we can do, you know, like we can put out there without having to be there physically. Um, but yeah, it's just, it, we just released it today and it's just stunning. The videography is beautiful. The dance is beautiful. The choreography is gorgeous. And, um, it, it, you know, it just definitely makes me happy <laughs> in this uncertain moment. Yeah. No question about it. Rhiannon Giddens 
joins us here on Box to Row. We're up against the break. We're going to step aside and take that break and come back, have more of our conversation with Rhiannon Giddens right here on Box to Row on HRR Voices, Sirius XM Channel 141. Come round by my side and I'll sing you a song. I'll sing it so softly, it'll do no one wrong. On Birmingham Sunday, the blood ran like a wine, and the choirs kept singing of freedom. That cold autumn morning, no I saw the sun. And Dish TV is better than cable TV. Here's why. Dish has the nation's lowest TV price, along with an award-winning DVR that can skip commercials, record eight shows at once, and get access to thousands of movies at your fingertips. Cable simply can't even compare. So the smart choice is to cut the cable and get Dish. Plus, you get all these great TV features, free HD DVR upgrade, free installation, and free movie channels. Say goodbye to cable and get more with Dish TV. Call 800-579-0107. 800-579-0107. As an added bonus, you can switch to Dish now and receive a $50 Visa gift card. So call now and get Dish TV. 800-579-0107. 800-579-0107. That's 800-579-0107. Limited time offer, 24-month commitment, and credit qualification required. Cancellation fee, monthly equipment fees, and other restrictions apply. Promotion can change at any time. You're listening to Box to Pro. I'm watching from my window. We're back here on Box to Row, continuing our conversation with musician Rhiannon Giddens. Have you done or given thought? I know some artists are doing like IG Live and Facebook Live and so forth concert-wise. Is that something uh, we may see you do uh, here in the near future? For sure. Um, I'm doing, you know, I've, I've kind of been with my kids, you know, for, for a while. So now I, I'm starting to, you know, think about adding to that situation and you know i've got i've got some other things in the works um it's hard because i'm across i'm two and a half hours uh, away from francesco who's my musical partner um so i don't really do things on my own very much so it's a little it's a little bit of a challenge um since we're apart but uh, we're going to see what we can do what we can put together virtually but yeah i'm going to be adding to the conversation try to raise some money as well um for different funds and things with performances or just trying to you know, just trying to put some positivity out there. Yeah. That the voice of Rhiannon Giddens, of course, a native of, of Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, currently in sure. Ireland. as she joins us. We got to talk more about that. Also, she joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. You know, I had a chance to watch your video or online your video. I'm on my way, which I thought was absolutely uh, phenomenal musically like I'm. You know, I'm into, you know, really all kinds of music, having grown up in the 80s, uh, you know, probably more so hip hop and so forth. But I mean, that that song and the music there, I just love music was awesome. Can you speak to sort of the inspiration uh, behind the song and the video? 
Yeah, well, the song was an, an older one. It was kind of, you know, it was kind of my answer to there's a bunch of blues songs where the women, you know, are being beat down by their men, but they're going to stay, you know, stick around or what, you know. And I was just kind of like, oh man, I'm I'm kind of tired of this vibe. And I I wrote this song, kind of, you know, this woman sort of breaking free of that. But I hated all the verses that I'd written, so I gave it to Joe Henry and I said, look, the the chorus is great and the tune is great. You know, what do you think? And so he wrote these beautiful verses, and uh, it just became sort of the single, as you will, um, from from the record. And, uh, you, you know, the videographer who was with us just did a beautiful job of capturing how we made the record. So I just wanted to put all the images together so people kind of had a feeling for how we did it because it was kind of a unique situation. Um, and I'm just really thrilled that the song has done so well because it's a very weird kind of instrumentation, you know, and, and the Iranian daft and a minstrel banjo and um, to be able to take that. We took it to the Today Show, you know. It's just really, really cool that people liked it, even though it was very unusual. It's, it's now, it's the theme song for a new show called um, called Somewhere South, um, which is really cool. And I think I think it got played on American Idol. I mean, I just think it's so great that something that's so kind of unorthodox sort of has found a found an audience and found people who really like it. So yeah. I was really thrilled about that. No, it's awesome. More more of a pop thing. Like, like that's sort of the the what I wanted to get into. But even the precursor to my next question, I want to ask you: Did you see the documentary Country uh, that was on PBS? Which I thought. Or maybe in country, maybe in country music actually. But it was just country music actually, but it was absolutely. I, I was I was absolutely fascinated by it because it went through all the the various times in country music. I'm not a I, like I'm not a huge country fan per se. Like I said, I like music. I, 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 country's okay with me. But did you have a chance to see that documentary? And if so, what were your thoughts? The one by Ken Burns. Correct. I, well, I'm in it. So <laughs> I, I missed I'm you. Quite aware of it. I missed you. So you, okay. So you see, I didn't see the. Uh, yeah, that is kind of funny, right? But I didn't see the end of it. I saw like the first, I don't know, maybe first four or five episodes up of it, and I and I and I actually failed to see like whatever the year was to the present. I missed that part of it. But your your thoughts? Well, I mean, I, that was interesting. I, yeah, they stopped. Uh, I think in. Uh, they stopped before. They stopped in the year 2000 or something. They right. stopped before. They had to kind of pick a time. I know I'm in the end. I haven't seen it. I'm I'm in the first episode is where most of my my footage is. So I think you might have caught the middle the middle section of it. Yeah. Um, because they start with the banjo, and that's why they. I was actually the last person they talked to. Um, they were just about to lock it down, and somebody told Ken about me, and he wanted. To interview me so I came in and I was actually part of the release you know there was a big release concert at the Ryman uh, I'm, I'm on that so if you get a chance to see that that's really fun I, they wanted me to sing uh, crazy and I was like you want me to sing a Patsy Cline song y'all are cruel but um, it was really <laughs> it was really fun um, to be involved in that and I you know I think that Ken really tried I mean it, it, it's more than just one documentary can do, even as far-ranging as this documentary is. But he, he really did try, and I think in, to some, in some measure he did succeed in sort of um, really addressing the issues of how people look at country music and who is a part of country music and who people think are and aren't a part of country You know, he really tries to, to bring people's attention to the fact that black people have always been a part of country music and that, 
you know, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot more integral. We're a lot more integral than people think. And, you know, I, so I, I really appreciate how much he tried to push the needle. Um, I mean, there's still a lot to, to, to do because it's such a huge topic that has been really, you know, has been mischaracterized for a long time. But I, I thought he really, I was really admiring of how much he put into it and how, how much he wanted to, you know, address some of that is, those issues. I think it's a great point, and he generally does that with his with his documentaries. And you bring up a great point in terms of country music and persons of color. But my my next question is this: because I I introduced you as a musician, but I mean some people like to put a tag on things: folk, old time music, bluegrass, um, etc. Your your what? How would you would you put a label on your music? If so, what would that label B. Yeah, so funny. It's so hard because I mean I, I would put my I say I'm American. I would play American roots music. You know, I, I play the music that is at the roots of all the different American genres, you know. Um whatever that means to somebody, that's the thing is is that we all have to agree on what a definition is for it to be useful and genres are notoriously terrible at changing, you know. They're they that's just what they do and American music in, in general is very hard to, uh, to put, to put into genres because it is, you know, as a consequence of how it came about, it, it, it pulls from so many different things that it kind of defies all of those labels, especially all the early stuff. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that's what I say to people. I, I, you know, I've, I've broken down. I've admitted, okay, you know, somebody, people want to know where well, they want to have some ideas. So that's, that's as close as I can get is American roots music, you know. Some people say Americana, um, you know. Yeah. No, you know, it's interesting. And, of course, we're joined by Rhiannon Giddens here on uh, the program. You can follow her on Twitter at Rhiannon Giddens. Uh, you know, that, that's the thing. Like, I think what makes you so interesting and, and to the point about the Ken Burns piece, uh, country music and, and the history of black folks and people of color in country music uh, but you don't see like you don't see a lot of people of color. Uh, and I know we're not labeling your music country, but that play specifically as well as you do the banjo. How did you get involved, uh, you know, more specifically uh, in, in terms of playing the banjo, which, of course, you are uh, probably the best in the world at doing so? Well, I would definitely not say that. There's many, many banjo players much better than me. What I do specifically, though, is unique, and what I what I have done is really dug into the history of the banjo and incorporated that into my songwriting. You know, so I mean, I got into the banjo, you know, many, many years ago and fell in love with the sound of the claw hammer banjo, which is the older style. It's the style that came that was in existence for many years before bluegrass ever was invented. You know, and uh, I discovered that then, oh, the banjo is actually an African-American instrument. I didn't know that. Invented in the Caribbean, brought up by enslaved people to the United States, and then becomes an instrument of both black and white people for a, quite a long time. And it was only really at the turn of the century and in the 1920s that, you know, basically white supremacists, you know, try, tried to spin this narrative and to turn this idea of, of banjo music, what they called hillbilly music, into this white ethnic music and erase the fact that black people had been playing banjos and fiddles for many, many hundreds of years, you know? Um, and it also happened around the time of the Great Migration, 
which, you know, meant it was a big displacement of millions of black people to different parts of the country where the banjo wasn't necessarily a traditional instrument. You know, so there's all of these things that are going into it. It's being, it's being documented by the recording industry. So then, you know, we believe the recordings. We don't, we don't know the history, so we believe the recordings, which, you know, a lot of black people didn't get recorded who would have played the banjo because the people who were in charge said, we don't want black people playing banjo on this recording. You know what I mean? It was just really that clear. So as I got into the history, I just realized this is, you know, this is nuts. We are a big part of this, and I'm proud of being a banjo player. And so I play an old style a banjo that's a replica from 1858, and it's like, you know, it's a lot closer to Africa than the modern banjo is. Um, and I just, I love the sound of it. So I've pulled that into, you know, contemporary songwriting which is i'd say i'm the only one doing that for sure i will i will give you that (laughs) um and i do what i do well you know but there's a lot of fantastic banjo players out there i i kind of you know i focus on the historical aspects of it and and you know and exploring the sounds from that time that you know we haven't heard in a long time and you know were sounds that came from a time where black people played the banjo a lot so um it has a special has a special feel for me yeah, no, thank you for that wonderful history lesson. Uh, you know, it's, it's just just fascinating to speak with you um, as we've been looking to do. You know, who are some of your musical, are, were some of your musical influences? Musical influences? Ah, I've got such a weird hodgepodge. Um, you know, anywhere from, God... Tom Lehrer um, and and Stephen Sondheim were like incredible lyricists and and uh, kind of musical people. To Jill Scott uh, in the Irie, um, Queen Latifah. I mean, it's, I'm in really odd mix of you know across the aisle. I guess you can say. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I've listened to kind of a little bit of everything. Um, for me, it's the it, the music, the words are really important. I was a huge fan of Sting for a long time because his poetry was really beautiful to me. I mean, Jill Scott's a poet. I'm very I'm very into the words uh, being kind of not primary, but being really important. So I'm not so much into pop song, a lot of pop songs because you know they're great to kind of dance along to, but I, there's not a lot going on in the words department. <laughs> um, I tend to. I mean, you know, I'm just yeah. saying it's not what there's. It's not what they're written for. They're written to dance to and enjoy, and that's fine. But what I'm drawn to are really, I, lo- I love words, and uh, you know, really, um, that's that's really affected me a lot in, in my music making. Rhiannon Giddens joining us here on Box to Row. We're gonna take a small pause for the cause. Come back. Our conversation with Rhiannon Giddens. You're tuned into Box to Row. Let's continue our conversation with. The very accomplished Rhiannon Giddens here on Box to Row. So we're not that far apart in terms of age. So you weren't a huge, necessarily a huge fan of the 80s per se? I mean, I was, I, I was born in 77. So I, you know, I have more of a feeling. I mean, I've heard tons of 80s music, but I, you know, came, sort of became a teenager in the 90s. Yeah. So that's kind of more sticks with me but like of course my sister seven years older and is huge music fan so i like heard all the duran duran and madonna <laughs> and all that stuff you know yeah so um yeah so i mean i i'm a fan i mean it's some of some of that music's really great some of it's awful but it's really fun to <laughs> it's fun to you know reminisce and to dance to you know um those electric sounds are not really my thing but um 
Yeah, it's been a lot of nostalgia. But there's some great songs from that time, for sure. Yeah. Couple more thoughts, uh, thoughts that is with Rhiannon Giddens, who joins us in the program again. You can follow her on Twitter at Rhiannon Giddens. So let's talk a little bit about the the chocolate drops, drops, right? I mean, mm. you guys, want, you know, and I, I was, I think I was reading, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that in essence uh, there was what the black banjo then and now gathering in 2005 that I guess what ultimately led to the formation of the chocolate drops. Yeah, the Black Banjo Gathering was a uh, kind of a one of a kind, you know, event. It came out of a list serve. This was before Facebook, you know, and this was when people were on on list serves and there was a banjo list serve and if, you know, back then if you said, "Oh, the banjo you know, is invented by black people," people would flame you. People would say nasty things and so Tony Thomas like broke off from that and started the Black Banjo Players then and now list serve and then the the gathering came out of that and the, you know, eight black people who played the banjo <laughs> um, came and a whole bunch of white people who were supporting and knew the history of the banjo and wanted to be, you know, um, involved. Um, you know, there's a lot more people of color playing the banjo now. It's amazing. But back then there was, you know, I knew them all <laughs> by the end of the weekend, you know. Right. Um, and that's where me and the other two chocolate drops, you know, we all met and decided to you know, start visiting an elder, Joe Thompson, who was a black fiddler from North Carolina. And, you know, that's that's definitely where it all started. It was a, a really amazing thing to be a part of. I mean, and then ultimately, I mean, you guys formed and then your album from 2011, Genuine Negro Jig, uh, won the Grammy. I mean, when you, you know, there's so many awards, but I mean, when you win the Grammy, that's pretty big time. Uh, speak to that and you won it for Best Traditional Folk Album. Yeah, we were the last ones, actually, to win for Best Traditional Folk Album because they actually got rid of that category next year, um, and it just turned into folk, Best Folk Album, you know. Um, so maybe that was our last chance. I don't know. Um, we slid in under the wire. But it was, uh, yeah, it was an amazing feeling. Um, it was our first time out. I've been nominated, actually, quite a few times since then. I've been, you know, a couple times since then. But it's kind of like when you win – you know, in the beginning, it kind of, you know, you're like, well, what? I'm not being greedy. I have one. I don't, you know. It's, <laughs> it's okay to be it's greedy. Great to be not- it's okay to be no, greedy. No, it's, you know, it is great to be nominated, and it's great to be there. But, you know, ultimately, there's a ton of people who make incredible music who never even get nominated. So, you know, I, I take it for what it is. It's a, it's a recognition, you know, by, by people um, that our music was saying something to them. And that's, and that's incredible, but I don't think it should say you know that i'm a, any better or any worse than anybody else because i have a grammy you know so it it always feels kind of always feel conflicted about it you know it's like i'm really glad i have one i'm very proud to have it but i'm also like but you know i know a lot of amazing people who don't have one so it, it you know it doesn't make me think anything about myself other than you know i have this thing yeah and it is in the you know it's in the bio forever yeah um and that's cool you know it, it's helpful to let you know people they don't know they've never heard of you like you're in a taxi you know and they've never heard of you of course nobody who's heard of me you know and and then you say something about a grammy then oh that you're actually a legit musician i mean it shouldn't be that way but it is you know so it's a tool like any other other thing yeah i mean as talented as you are and and i guess like you said i mean and i think you know i to me that that's why i liked i'm on my way so much because 
you know, it 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 it, it spoke to more of maybe a, a diverse people that would listen to all genres uh, of music. Does that because you're so? I mean, the bottom. That's fine. You may not look at yourself this way, but you're great, and your greatness in what you do should be more recognized. Does that uh, well, bother you that maybe sometimes people don't don't recognize you as as great as you are? Well, well, thank you for saying that. I mean, I I feel actually wonderful, you know, about where I've come and how I've been recognized. I mean, I sure I would love more mainstream recognition just because I think my music would would you know would appeal to more people if they heard it um but it's it's kind of like I've, I've been able to do a lot of really cool things like singing about slavery and singing about really hard things and playing an old band you know an old an old uh, replica banjo and making unorthodox decisions I mean I'm on my way as a banjo riff and a Iranian frame drum <laughs> you know what I mean it's like completely oddball um but it's like you said it, it it still has an appeal and that's kind of my my whole point is that i i shouldn't have to you know try to try to do with an album that sounds like everybody else to to achieve mainstream success i think that people have an appetite for you know a good song no matter what it sounds like so it's really just kind of getting out there and i'm doing it the, the long i'm just looking at the long the long game, you know, and it yeah. takes time. I don't, I, I don't need a, a top 10 hit, you know, to, I just want to build my audiences year by year. And then I get a bit, a bit more. It just, if it's gradual, then maybe it, it lasts, you know, yeah. I'd rather have this. And then maybe next year, more people know about me. You know, I was just doing something with Samuel L. Jackson. So like maybe that, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Kind of, and, and the thing, and they're all coming to me because I do what I do. You know, they're not right. coming to me because I'm a pretty face. They're not coming to me because I'm a good singer. It's because I, I do the things that I do. I mean, I was part of the Red Dead Redemption 2 game, you know, which was like a, a huge thing. Yeah. And, like, you know, I, I didn't get any superstardom from that, but I got a real appreciation for what the video game industry is, and, and I connected, to, you know, even though they don't know me by person, I connected to all these, teenagers and 20 year olds that would never hear my music they heard my song you know so i'm really i'm actually really pleased i mean i would always take more of course you know because the more people who know you the more you can do but um i i think it's been a great run so far i mean who knows what's going to happen with this after this uh virus you know and and how it's going to reshape the music industry but i have no complaints i have to tell you i really don't and i'm surrounded by wonderful people and you know, it's been a good life so far. So, no, I, I like I understand exactly where you're coming from. Uh, Nashville. Let, let me. What? How fun was that? You were on what? I guess a total of eleven episodes, 2017, 2018 of the TV series Nashville. Yeah, that was super fun. I mean, I had a ball. It was really cool. Uh, it suited suited me at that time. Um, I had just I was fresh off of a. Big disappointment on Broadway, you know, they closed the show I was working on before I got to do it, and um, yeah, everybody was fantastic, and they worked in my banjo into the plot, and it was it was really great. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot, and you know, I was told a couple of directors said if I wanted to do it, do it, you know, try to go into acting that I could, I could, I could do something with it. But you know, I I, I had fun, and 
I'm, I'm, you know, I'm here to make music. If another opportunity came that was something like that, I would totally do it. But um, I let the, I let the actors, <laughs> you know, do their thing. But yeah, it was, it was, it was really fun. I, I left with a lot of respect for the TV industry. People work really hard, and uh, they're just really, they were very, very kind to me. Yeah. So what was it like going, growing up in Greensboro? Where did, were you over at? I don't know, G or A&T a lot. What, what was that time for you like growing up in, in Greensboro, North Carolina? I mean, you know, I, my, I started I started out in the country. And so I, I moved to Greensboro when I was like eight or nine. So I was kind of, I'm kind of a hybrid, you know. I, I spent a lot of time out in the country with my grandparents. But then I'm in this kind of small city, small residential city. And it's a very, it's very mixed. There's a lot of, it's very mixed black and white, you know. And so... I don't know. I just kind of, just kind of lived my life, and I had my, you know, mixed friend, you know, mixed group of friends, and I went to Dudley for two years, and I went to school of science and math. My grandparents wow. went to A and T, you know, so I got a lot of connections to uh, stuff there. I mean, it's a nice, it's a nice place. It's definitely developed a lot in a in a very positive way. Wow. You know, it was, it was kind. I felt like it was a bit stagnant when I left. You know, to go to college, I was like, I'm never coming back here. You know. But uh, they really revitalized downtown, and they built the, you know, the Civil Rights Museum, and um, I feel like there's a lot of really positive things happening in Greensboro. It's a beautiful, so, beautiful I'm, thing. Rhiannon Giddens went to historic Dudley High School. I did. I did for two years. I Dudley High. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <Right> there. <laughs> and then, uh, so now, work it, how, are you working with your sister currently on, on any projects? I know you work with her from time, or you all work together from time to time. Yeah, we do. Um, right now, you know, I'm I'm stuck here and she's stuck there. We're gonna we might do some, you know, that acapella app where you can sing together. You know, we might do something like that. Um, I just did a project with her son that I'm still working on. Uh, he's a rapper and uh, he's amazing. And I've been combining banjo and rap in a really cool, very or- or organic way. So I'm I'm still working on that, hoping to get that out. So he's extremely talented. His, his handle is Demeanor. Um, but, uh, so, you know, the family's always in there somehow cause I got, I got some great talented people in my family. So, yeah. And then lastly, like, are you into sports? Are you a big sports fan? Um, you know, I was into, I mean, I'm a North Carolina girl. So of course I was into high, um, college basketball. I mean, you just can't live in North Carolina and not, and not have a, a horse in that race. Um, but it, it's, it's so stressful because I'm a Carolina girl, you know, Tar Heel. My whole family's Tar Heel fans. So it was so stressful to watch it. I had to stop watching the games because I was <laughs> out, you know. Um, I have to say, you know, in terms of sports, I've enjoyed getting into the Irish sports here because they're still amateur. Um, they have these sort of native uh, sports called hurling and uh, Gaelic football. And, you know, it, it's all county-based, so the counties are all competing against each other, and all of the athletes have jobs, you know, so it's an amateur. They do it in addition to whatever they do, and so it, there's no money in it, you know. It's like people are, are doing it because of the sport. I mean, there is, I'm sure there is. I'm sure they, they get compensated, but it, there's not any kind of money compared to professional sports. And, you know, it's, it's not global, so it's just here. You know, it's just – so I have enjoyed sort of getting into that because I do – I, the thing that I don't like about sports is, is there's so much money involved and there's no, to me, it's just like, you know, who can be the best players? I, it doesn't make me want to root for a team, you know? So, 
Um, I have enjoyed getting into that a little bit. My daughter was playing a little bit, the hurling, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's cool. Awesome. Unexpected. I didn't expect that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Carolina. I I was in a pub. Go ahead. I was, I was in a pub in Limerick and it was the big championship for the hurling finals and Limerick won. And it was just like, I thought my heart was going to (laughs) explode. Everybody's like jumping up and down and cheering. I was like, Oh my God, you know, sports. You know, it can be fun. Yeah. That is awesome. Rhiannon Giddens joining us here on from the Press Box to Press Row. Give us that website one more time, the collaborative that you're currently working on. www.artliveson.com. com. So check her out there and uh, check her music out uh, online. It's absolutely fantastic. Also follow her on Twitter at Rhiannon Giddens. Rhiannon, we really appreciate the time. Uh, and continue to you and your family to stay safe and uh, hopefully we'll be um, uh, seeing you real soon doing some new projects. I hope so. It was so great to talk to you. Stay safe and healthy. Conversation with Cal Ripken is up next. It's Donald Ware from the press box to press row. We're back here on Box to Row. A fascinating conversation with Rhiannon Giddens. If you want to react to anything she had to say, hit us up via Twitter, Box to Row, B-O-X-T-O-R-O-W. Or on Facebook, B-O-X, the number two R-O-W. Had a chance last week to catch up with Baseball Hall of Famer Orioles shortstop, former Orioles shortstop Cal Ripken. And had a chance to talk with him. He's doing a lot as it relates to the COVID-19 pandemic. And also talked with him about his outstanding career. Yeah, the uh, to understand uh, how it all happened, uh, really context is uh, necessary. And the 94 season uh, stopped, about, I think, August 12th, if I remember correctly. We, uh, we went out on a strike. Then uh, there was no uh, negotiations really subsequently and nothing happened. Then uh, the World Series was canceled. The rest of the season was canceled that year, including the World Series. And then the owners locked us out of spring training for the first few weeks of uh, 95. So when the, the business side finally cleared, cleared up and we all came back to uh, spring training, we had a short period of time to get ready, like three weeks, which was plenty of time for a regular player. Uh, the pitchers had to be stretched out a little bit quicker. But I remember uh, – when the first day I came into spring training is that uh, there was a lot of media interest in this thing called the streak. And I didn't anticipate that at first, you know, I, uh, if things were to go uh, as, as uh, they had in the past, then September 6th would be the uh, record breaking uh, um, time. But just like any other season, I just wanted to focus on what I was doing now, try to get better, try to contribute to, uh, to the team each and every day. And so, but the media uh, really started to show interest and they were anticipating this, uh, this moment almost for the first time. It felt like there was pressure for me to do it. And I never really looked at it that way before. So uh, when we started to go through, the fans were mad um, and rightfully so. The business side got in the way of them enjoying uh, the sport. And I think all the players felt bad that we took that away from them for a while. And so I think we were all reaching out uh, in ways um, through the autograph or through uh, just being around people. And I know that was on my mind. But then the, uh, the streak seemed to be something that people um, really were looking. If they were, if they were looking for something good and a connection to the past of, Oriole, or of, uh, of baseball, Major League Baseball, then the streak was that thing. 
And I think people, uh, you know, looked at it uh, compared to Lou Gehrig in a time when uh, baseball was a sport, you know, not a form of entertainment necessarily or a big form of entertainment. The athletes weren't entertainers. They were sportsmen. But as the season went on, this anticipation uh, tended to grow. And uh, I don't know whether uh, I could be credited. I mean, the streak itself could be credited for uh, saving baseball or putting baseball back on track again. But I do know a heck of a lot of people cared about it, and they cared about the principle or the value of showing up every day. And it, it, uh, it ended up with a wonderful celebration that nobody could choreograph. I know the Orioles did a nice job with the banners on the warehouse, but nobody could have uh, thought of take a lap around the ballpark and have it unfold the way it did for 22 minutes. So when I think about it, there were so many things that happened uh, during that course of the season that ended in the record-breaking night that people really uh, held on to. But I feel really good that we played a role in uh, in helping bring baseball back. Yeah, no, no question about it. And, of course, help Cal Ripken to strike out hunger. Visit ripkinfoundation.org backslash donate backslash strike out hunger. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. What is it's interesting. Like, n- not many people get to, and, and, and of course, Al Kalon passed away uh, a couple of weeks ago, but it's not a lot uh, of, of situations where someone gets to play their entire career for their home state organization at the highest level. So what did that mean to you? And, of course, having grown up uh, with your father, Cal Ripken Sr., being a part of the Orioles organization? Well, I mean, there's, there's a couple of parts about the, the dream of being a big league player. Uh, when I was a kid, I grew up around the Orioles. My dad was, uh, as you said, was with the Oriole organization. But it was really easy in the Baltimore area to be an Oriole fan. Uh, they were great. They were good. They were in the World Series virtually every year. From the earliest part of my childhood, I remember going to a World Series game in 66, seeing Frank Robinson in a home run, and they swept the Dodgers that year. Um, then in 69, 70, 71, they're in the uh, World Series. Now they won one of them. And my hero, Brooks Robinson, dominated the 70 World Series. So it was easy to uh, root for the Orioles. And, and so part of the dream was I want to be a baseball player, but I want to be an Oriole. You know, I'm from this area. I want to uh, do that. Now, it's really outside of your control. Uh, the draft comes, comes around, and if you're good enough to be drafted, you can't control where you go in the draft. But I, I, I just so happened that I was drafted in the second round. We had four second-round picks that year, I believe. And the Orioles took me as one of the uh, four second-round picks, which gave me an opportunity uh, to start my dream uh, in an Oriole uniform uh, in the minor leagues. And once you get uh, through the system and you get to the big leagues, then you feel like you've made it. But then uh, to be able to play your whole career, even in uncertain times, you know, there was many rebuilding processes in that time. We were really great early. We won the World Series early in my career. But we went through some ups and downs. And uh, I always felt that uh, it was important that uh, that I I was young enough to get through a rebuilding process the first time, but it was part of my identity and it's part of who I wanted to be. I wanted to write the Orioles and help the Orioles get back to the playoffs. And uh, I'm glad that uh, things worked out that way because many times when you go through rebuilding, they get rid of the whole team and then they start from scratch, um, maybe similar to what's happening with the Orioles now. And so I was really fortunate to uh, to withstand those sort of movements and still be able to, to, to play as an Oriole the whole time, my whole career. 
Yeah, I tell you what, as an Orioles fan, I tell you, I remember '83. I was I was old enough to remember that. Uh, boy, that '88 season was rough, 0 and 21. But then the next season came back, finished second, almost actually won uh, the division, and then of course helping to lead the Orioles back in the mid '90s was awesome. The '83 season. What do you remember most about that? The World Series, and of course, you won League MVP. Um, well, I was going to say the uh, when you started to mention '89, uh, in my mind, real quickly, the '82 season, which was my rookie year, and the '89 season was a, were both really, really exciting years. Um, the 82 season, we went to the last day of the season, and we were tied with the Milwaukee Brewers. We had that final uh, series at uh, at home where we needed to win. We were three back with four to play, and they were all against the Brewers, and we beat them the first three games. And then we had ultimately lost. Robin Yelp uh, hit two home runs off of Jim Palmer, and he was the MVP of that league. But we were that close to making the uh, uh, playoffs, uh, winning the, the – it was just one game. And we all looked around at each other and thought, you know, we could have made that one game up in any time. We blew this lead here. We did that. We got off to a slow start. So we all looked at uh, each other. And then we went into spring training. It was almost on autopilot that we were all, uh, there was a sense of urgency to getting off to a good start. And we walked away with the pennant that year. We, we might have won it uh, uh, with a huge, you know, I'm thinking it might have been 15 to 17 games we, were, we finished in first place. And then we went on to beat the White Sox and we went on to beat the Phillies in the World Series. But I do believe the experience in 82 with almost identical uh, group of guys, uh, it shaped us and it uh, motivated us to really get off to a good start and, and win the whole thing next year. Now, it, what a way to start my first two years of my career. A rookie of the year, we went to the last day of the season, sure we win the World Series. And uh, I'm thinking we're going to do this uh, you know, time and time again. But then we fell into a, a little bit of a rebuilding process. Um, I know we were good in 84, but the Tigers were better. They got off to a 35-5 start. We were pretty good in 85. Then we started going into the free agent market in 86. We're in that, around that time. Um, and then we went through a rebuilding process, which was really painful. But coming out of that rebuilding process after we lost 21 games in 88, uh, the Orioles fired my dad during that time. Very difficult time. But 89 – was sort of a unexpected year where we had a lot of uh, young, energetic guys, a lot of enthusiasm. They started playing great defense. They started developing as players. I was able to uh, to sit in the middle of that lineup and contribute, and we found ourselves playing the Toronto Blue Jays in the final weekend of the season for the pennant. So we needed to win two out of three to tie, um, and we were winning the first game, and we had Greg Olson came in to close the game out, um, and uh, um, we, they end up coming back and beating us, uh, I believe, on a wild pitch. And the second game, we had them beat again, and the same thing happened. They came and snatched it uh, from us in the last inning. Um, Greg Olson was great as a uh, as a closer, and he was the reason we got to that point. Tried to throw a couple of curveballs uh, that would break too big, and they they were in the dirt. And uh, and we end up losing uh, both those games, and we lost the pennant. But that was one of the most gratifying and the, the most exciting seasons because the expectations were so low yeah no question about it the one and only cal ripkin joins us here on the program you can help him strike out hunger the strike out hunger campaign he's partnered with feed america and others more information can be found at ripkinfoundation.org backslash donate backslash strike out hunger hunger interestingly enough Cal, I mean, you're, you're doing this now, right? But you've always given back to the community. Talk about that and, and what has led you to, in fact, do so throughout the course of your career. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, the influence of my parents, uh, they were always uh, encouraging uh, uh, me to be part of the community. Um, and then my mom even uh, set the standard really high. She said, just think, you know, you go on to be a baseball player, you, you end up making a lot of money. Just think of all the people that you can help with that platform. And so I put that in the back of my mind. And uh, when I signed my first longer-term contract, um, then I felt like, uh, and I had good, I had good role models too. Eddie Murray uh, had given five hundred thousand dollars to the to the city for a for a park in his mom's name. And when this happened, uh, you know, our foundation started thinking, how can we help now? So we shifted our focus to saying, okay, the the most important need now is food um, security. And there's food insecurity all over the place in normal times in some of these areas that. Uh, um, they rely on the Boys and Girls Clubs or schools to uh, for their meals, and all of a sudden that wasn't happening anymore. So uh, we decided that we we're going to put 100 grand up, and then our partners, Ollie's Bargain Outlet, Kevin Harvick Foundation, Group 1001, Niagara Cares, put up a $250,000 matching um, pledge, and uh, all of a sudden we were off to the races. And but I think the biggest value so far, and this is the reason I went on social media, is when you make a case. You know, obviously partnering with Feeding America because they, they, they know how to distribute food. We don't know how to do that. We have the right partner. But the biggest thing that they told me was for every $1 donated, it means 10 meals distributed. Cal Ripken joining us last week on Box to Row. Got to get ready to run. Just a reminder for hardcore sports, including HBCU sports. Tune in to our sister station Right here on Sirius XM, that would be Channel 142 HBCU for the latest on what's happening in sports and top interviews. Again, continue to stay safe and want to thank Rhiannon Giddens for joining us today here on Box to Row. For more information on the program, log on to our website, BoxToRow.com. And always remember to support those that support you. Box to Row is presented by DW Communications.